0: Well, I am excited about this series. We're about to start this morning. Let me ask you a question. How many of you either want to be a leader, consider yourself a leader, or would like to improve as a leader? If you would want to be a leader, you consider yourself a leader, or you'd like to improve as a leader, raise your hand. All right, a lot of you. Okay, let me ask another question. How many of you want to live life successfully? You want to live life to its fullest if you want to live life successfully if you want to live life to its fullest raise your hand well hopefully that's all of us that want to do that well I've got news for you everybody in this room is a leader regardless of who you are regardless of how old you may be you are a leader the only question is who are you leading and how effective are you as a leader this morning we're beginning a series where we're going to take a look at, at 500 years, about 500 years in the history of the nation of Israel. And as we do, we're going to look at 11 of the kings of Israel. And as we unpack the lives of these 11 kings, we're going to be learning some lessons about life and about leadership. And if we apply these lessons, these truths that we learn to our life, I will guarantee you, I promise you, that we will be living life to its fullest, and I promise you that you can be an effective leader regardless of where you are right now. Now, as we get started this morning, I want to give you a little bit of background that kind of leads us into this, this period of the King's. When God gave his people the law in Deuteronomy, God made provisions for the one day when the people would want a king. And this is what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. He said, you are about to enter the land the Lord your God has given you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select a king, the man the Lord your God chooses. Now, don't miss what this says. God never told the people that they needed a king. But then he said, but if you choose a king, if you get to that point where you want a king like the nations around you, then this is the type of king that you need to have. And then God gives us the characteristics of the man who was going to be the king. And this is what he said in verses 18 through 20 that really kind of sum up everything else. He said, when he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. Now, this this instruction that he was to copy on a scroll was the word of God it was the law of God and so the king was to have a copy of the law of God and then it says he must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives that way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees the regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also present, prevent him from turning from these commands in the smallest way, and it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. You see, God was saying that any future king that sits on the throne of my people need to know, they need to love, and they need to obey God's word. So understand The premise of good leadership is knowing God's word and obeying God's word. Now, when Israel went into the promised land, they didn't have a king. They were led by Joshua and other godly leaders. But the Bible says that when Joshua and these other elders, these other godly leaders died, another generation grew up that neither acknowledged the Lord or remembered the mighty things that he had done. In other words, after Joshua and and all of those that were with Joshua died out, another generation came along that, that didn't follow God, that didn't know God. They didn't remember how great God was. And this led the people of Israel into a time of great evil. And because of this, God's judgment continued to be poured out on them as a nation. And when we Read in the book of Judges about this time, and we get to the end of the book of Judges, we read these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, because there was an absence of godly leadership, chaos reigned. Everyone did what they wanted to do. There was no standard There was no right and wrong. Everyone decided right and wrong. And then that takes us to 1 Samuel. God had raised up a godly man named Samuel. And Samuel was a prophet. Samuel was a priest. And Samuel was a judge. And he was a godly man. But as Samuel got older, the people began to ask for a king. Twice in in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they said, give us a king. Like the nations around us. But I want to remind you of something. God never chose Israel to be like the nations around them. God wanted the nation of Israel to be different. He wanted them to be distinct. He wanted them to be His people. God chose the nation of Israel from all the peoples of the earth to be His people for His purpose. That's why God said in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, when, when they asked for a king, he said, they are rejecting me. They don't want me to be their king any longer. You see, God did not create Israel to have a king. God never intended for them to have a king. He made provisions. He made allowances because God knows every decision we will ever make. But God's desire was never for them to have a king. God's desire was for them to realize that he was their king. In Psalm 95, verse 3, it says this, For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. Understand, God's desire for you is to be the king of your life. God's desire for you is to be the Lord of your life. And it really doesn't matter who is sitting on the throne of a country. It doesn't matter who is sleeping in the White House or the governor's mansion if Jesus is not the king of your life. If he's not the king of your life, it doesn't matter who else is ruling the world. The most important thing is to have the king of kings as the lord of your life. But the people, the people didn't realize that That when they were asking for a king, they were rejecting God's rule in their life. And so God told Samuel, give them what they ask for. I want you to listen very carefully. Sometimes God gives us what we ask for to show us it's it's not what we needed at all. Sometimes God will give us what we want even when it's not what He wants. To show us that what we want is not what we need. So understand, you need to be careful what you ask God for. Now that brings us to the first king of Israel, Saul. On the surface, Saul had, had all the characteristics of a great king. He was from a wealthy, influential family. The Bible tells us he was good looking. As a matter of fact, it tells us he was the most handsome man In all of Israel. He was physically fit. We are told he was head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. And so here is Saul. He was from a great family. He was very handsome. He was physically fit. And yet when Samuel approached Saul and told him that you are going to be the focus of Israel's hope. This is what he said. He said, my family is the least important of all the families in Israel. Why are you talking to me? Now here's this man who came from an influential family, a wealthy family. Here was a man who who was head and shoulders above everybody else. Here was a man who was the most handsome man in all of Israel. And he says, well, I come from a a family that's insignificant. I'm a nobody. Why are you talking to me? Now, on top of, of this heritage that he came from and on top of all of these attributes that god had blessed him with we're told in the bible that god also gave saul a new heart but this isn't talking about new testament generation when we are saved but it is saying that god changed saul's heart god gave saul a fresh start a new beginning and then we are told that God's Spirit came powerfully upon Saul. Now again, this isn't talking about New Testament regeneration, when God's Spirit comes into us to live in us. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit would come upon a certain person at a certain time for a certain reason. And then God's Spirit could leave or would leave that person. But today, that's not how it is. When God's spirit comes into our life when we are saved God's spirit comes into our life to stay the Bible says that we are sealed with God's spirit God's spirit is our guarantee of the future hope that we have in him we can grieve the spirit we can quench the spirit but we can never lose God's spirit and then we are told in in chapter 10 verse 26 that God surrounded Saul with a group of men whose hearts God had touched. In other words, God placed a team around Saul of good, godly leaders that would help him succeed. And so, here was Saul. He came from a good family. He was bigger than everyone else. He was more handsome than everyone else. He, he was given a new heart by God. He was Filled with God's spirit, God gave him leaders to surround him, to help him succeed. Saul had everything he needed to succeed in life. And everything started off well. At the very beginning, God gave Saul a great military victory. Saul was popular with the people and and everything seemed to be going good. But underneath it all, underneath it all, Saul had some serious flaws some flaws that eventually led to his downfall. You see, even though God gave him a new heart, even though God's Spirit came powerfully upon him, it always seemed that Saul was going back to his dark side. The truth of the matter is, Saul was a carnal leader. Saul was controlled by the flesh, not by the Spirit. Last week, we discovered that mankind can be grouped into two categories, the wise and the fool. But the Bible also says there are two other categories in which mankind can be grouped, the carnal and the spiritual. The carnal are controlled by the flesh, our fleshly desires, our wants, our needs. The spiritual are controlled by the Spirit of God. In Galatians 5, Paul contrasts these two, and he tells us that the flesh wants to do opposite of what the Spirit wants to do. And he tells us these two are constantly fighting with one another. And then he tells us the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, if we are spiritual, these are the characteristics that we will have in our life. And he tells us the fruits are the works of the flesh. And he says if we are fleshly, these are the characteristics the attributes that we will have in our life you see Saul gave the appearance of a man who worshiped God but the truth of the matter is he lacked authentic relationship in the end it doesn't look like Saul had a personal relationship with God the truth of the matter is Saul's relationship with God was based on Samuel's relationship. As a matter of fact, if you study Saul's life in the book of 1 Samuel, you will never see God speaking specifically to Saul. You will never see Saul speaking specifically to God. God is always speaking to Saul through Samuel. And Samuel, or Saul, was always speaking to God through Samuel it's as if he wanted to get to God on the coattails of Samuel he worshiped God he made sacrifices to God he did all of the external things that would indicate that he had a relationship with God and yet the truth of the matter is he most likely did not now listen to me I, I don't know the heart of anyone you don't know the heart of anyone And I certainly do not know Saul's heart. And I pray and I hope that Saul is in the presence of God right now. But his life does not give evidence of that. And the sad reality is, I'm afraid, there may be some of us in the room today who are just like Saul. We worship We give offerings, but we really don't know God. We don't have a personal relationship with Him. We come and we sit and we serve and we go through the motions, but but we really don't have a relationship with God. We're we're trying to get to heaven on the coattails of our parents' relationship, or we're trying to get on the coattails of a a friend's relationship, or a pastor's relationship, or a deacon's relationship, or a spouse's relationship. And the truth of the matter is, listen, you cannot get to God on someone else's coattails. And so if you're here this morning, and, and you're going through the motions, But you don't have a genuine relationship with God. Your life has never been changed with Him. He is not personal to you. Then I beg with you, I plead with you to get right today. Now here's the bottom line. We can have all the characteristics that should bring success. But if we don't have the character, it will eventually lead to our downfall. We can have all of the characteristics that that everyone would think would make us successful. Saul did. His background, his heritage, his his looks, his strength. He was given a new heart. God's Spirit came powerfully upon him. He was surrounded by good leaders. And yet, Saul lost everything. Why? Why? Because external characteristics never will bring success. But internal character is what's important. Now now what I want to do is I want to give you five truths that we see from Saul's life that I believe can help you. Can help you be the leader you need to be. But can help you live life the way you need to live life. And here's what I promise you. I promise you, if you will begin to apply these truths to your life, if if you don't learn anything else this summer, if you will apply these simple five truths to your life, they will change everything. They'll change you as a leader. They'll change you as a person. Now, here's truth number one. Insecurity cripples. Humility empowers. Insecurity will always cripple you, But humility will always empower you. And the truth is, it's often hard to distinguish insecurity and humility. I mean, how can you tell whether someone is just simply insecure or someone is humble? Uh, Someone said it this way, and I think this makes perfect sense. They said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less in other words humility isn't thinking less of yourself it's not saying i'm no good i have no gifts i have no abilities i can't do anything right that's not humility that's insecurity humility is thinking of yourself less it's not about you it's not about your gifts it's not about your abilities it's not about your desires it's not about your wants. it's not about you humility is when we aren't the focus of attention God is the focus of attention. Other people are the focus of attention. And we're down the ladder. Now on the surface, it would look like Saul was was a humble leader. He had humility. But the truth of the matter is, from the very beginning, we see that Saul was anything but humble. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul built a monument to himself. Now let me ask you a question, if you build a monument to yourself, is that humility? I'm going to give myself an award, it's not humility, and yet that's what Saul did after a battle, after a victory, he built a monument to himself, Paul wasn't humble, he was proud And yet, he was insecure. We see this from the very beginning. We see when when Samuel came to tell Saul that that he was to be the king, he said, I'm here to tell you that you and your family are the focus of Israel's hopes. And Saul said, but I'm from only the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel. My family is least important of all the families. Why are you talking to me like this? We see this when... Samuel went to anoint Saul as king. When he went to anoint him, Saul couldn't be found. You know where he was? He was hiding among the bags. He didn't want to be found. He was insecure. We see this insecurity whenever Saul made decisions that were wrong. Instead of accepting responsibility and taking the consequences, he cast blame. He wanted to to blame other people for why something went wrong. That's not the sign of humility. That's the sign of insecurity. Listen, you will never become the leader or the person God desires until you have humility. Yet, you need to understand that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God created you with abilities that can do great things and until you embrace, embrace, and leverage those, you will never accomplish those great things. Someone once said that God created every one of us a 10 in some area. I believe that. I believe that everyone in this room is an expert in some area. You may sit back and think you can't do anything. If you say that, then you're denying what God has said about you. God has made you wonderful. God has made you valuable. God has given you gifts and abilities that he hasn't given anyone else. And when you learn those and you leverage those, you will be able to do great things. Listen to me. Look at me. Everybody in this room, God created you for greatness. Now, greatness doesn't mean that you're going to have riches and earthly wealth. Greatness doesn't mean that you're going to have popularity and prestige. But greatness does mean that when you're leveraging the abilities and the gifts that God has given you, you will have peace, you will have joy, you will, and, um, you will um, have fulfillment, and you will have success in what you're doing. And so, listen, insecurity cripples Humility, humility will make you a leader. Second, a strength not properly controlled will become a weakness. After Saul had been anointed king by Samuel, he went back and he was working in his field. And and Nahash, who was the king of Ammon, led his army against a town, the town of Jabesh-Gilead. And the people of Jabesh asked for peace with Nahash. But Nahash said, I'm only going to give you peace, allow peace, if every one of you will gouge out your right eye to disgrace Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a a pretty big price for peace, isn't it? And as you can imagine, the people of Jabesh said, we don't want to gouge out our eyes. Is there anything else we can do? So they sent a messenger out asking for help. And when the messenger came to Saul, I want you to listen to what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 11. It says, in the spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul. He became very angry. He took two oxen, cut them into pieces, sent the messengers to carry them throughout Israel with this message. This is what will happen to the oxen of anyone who refuses to follow Saul when Samuel went into battle. And the Lord made the people afraid of Saul's anger. And all of them came out together as one. When Saul mobilized them at Bezik, he found out there were 300,000 for the men of Israel, 30,000 for the men of Judah. Now, don't miss what it says here. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Saul, and he became what? He became angry. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, and he became angry. It wasn't Saul's sinful flesh. It was the Spirit of God that caused Saul to explode with anger. And then notice what it says. It said, the Lord made the people afraid of Saul's anger. And so God gave Saul this anger, and then God used this anger as a strength to help him lead the people. Now, some of you may have a problem with that, but take it up with God. That's what God says. God's Spirit gave him this anger, and then God's Spirit made the people afraid of this anger. In other words, a strength properly used accomplished great things for God. But here's the problem. When a strength is not properly used, When it's not properly controlled, it becomes a weakness. And that's what happened with Saul. Later on in chapter 18, David had just killed Goliath and and all the people were rejoicing. And in verse 6 and following, it says this, when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and Dance for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. Now, notice what it says. This made Saul very angry. What is this? He said. They credit David with ten thousand and me with only a thousand. Next time they'll be making him king. So, what happened? This anger that was given to him by God became a weakness. That eventually led to his downfall and a strength not properly controlled will become a weakness in your life let me give you another example a couple of chapters later in chapter 20 Saul had had tried to get Jonathan to give him some information about David and he was frustrated with his son Jonathan, and this is what Saul said in in 1 Samuel 20, verse 30. It says, Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. And listen to what he said, you stupid son of a whore. That's what he called his son. He boiled with rage and called his son, you stupid son of a whore. Can you imagine speaking to your child that way? Can you imagine speaking to anybody that way? Anger boiled within him. It got out of control and it led to his downfall. A strength, God-given strength, the anger, not properly controlled, led to a weakness. Now ask yourself, what are your God-given strengths? we all have them but here's what you need to understand any strength not properly controlled will become a weakness service can be your strength not properly controlled that will be a weakness gentleness may be your strength not properly controlled will become a weakness kindness giving can be your strength. Not properly controlled can be your weakness. Every strength can become a weakness if it's not properly controlled. Here's the third truth. Partial obedience equals disobedience. In chapter 15, God had decided it was time to deal with the horrific sins of the Amalekites. We don't need to go back into the history, but the Amalekites were evil, wicked, and God had said I am going to judge you and finally in 1st Samuel chapter 15 it's time for God to judge the Amalekites and here's what he told Saul listen to it he said completely destroy all the men the women the children the babies the cattle the sheep the goats the camels and the donkeys then I know that raises a lot of questions for many of you why in the world did God tell Saul to destroy all the babies and all the children? Why was God going to completely wipe out this nation of people? He was going to remove them from the face of the earth. Why? And we can talk about that at a later date. But what you need to understand right now is God commanded it. God said, this is what I want you to do. But Saul refused to obey. Not because he was righteous, he refused to obey because he was selfish. The Bible says that he killed everyone. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every child, except the king. He kept the king. And he didn't kill every animal like God commanded. He only killed the worthless animals. He kept all of the good animals for himself and his men. And so here he was. God said, I want you to completely wipe this nation, from the face of the earth because of the sins that they have committed. And Saul refused. Well, the Bible says that, that God was angry over that. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 10, it says, The Lord said, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me, and he has refused to obey my commands. Now, when Samuel came and confronted Saul with his sin, with his disobedience, Initially, Saul Saul hid it. He covered it up. He said, "I, I did everything God commanded. He said, I've obeyed God completely. But eventually, he had to fess up. He had to own up to what he did. And so instead of saying, I have sinned against God and I repent, he began to make excuses. He said, well, the reason we didn't kill all the animals is because we wanted to make sacrifices. And so God said, to obey is better than sacrifice. And then he said, disobedience is just like the sin of witchcraft. And then God said this in chapter 15, verses 23 and 26. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Listen, the alternative to full surrender, the alternative to full obedience, total obedience, is rebellion. Did you hear me? 90% obedience is 100% rebellion. Did you hear me? You need to hear this. 90% obedience, 95% obedience, 99% obedience is 100% rebellion. And there are some of you today, probably most of us here today, who are living that way. We've compartmentalized our lives. We say, I'm rebellious. I'm obedient in this area, in this area, in this area, in this area, area, so this makes up for these little areas that I'm not obedient. And we need to understand that if we're disobedient in one little area, we've broken God's law and we are disobedient. There are some of you here who come every Sunday. You serve in a ministry. You do all kinds of things. But you don't give the way God tells us to give. Now, now, I know some of us may disagree on what the Bible says, but let me just walk through it. The Old Testament commanded that the people gave a minimum of a tithe. The tithe was 10%. 10% of everything that you grew, everything that, that you had, everything that you made, you gave to God. 10% of it. If you didn't, you were stealing from God. That's what it says in Malachi chapter 3. Some of you say, but that's the law. You're right. That was the law. In the New Testament, we live under grace. You're right. We live under grace. Jesus made it clear that grace will compel us to do more than the law can ever command us to do. And so what was a minimum in the Old Testament, a tithe, is certainly a minimum for people who have understood that Jesus died for us. And there are some of you that you make excuses. You've compartmentalized your life. Well, I'm here. I serve. That should count. How how can you do that? 90% obedience is 100% rebellion. There are some of you here, some of you young people, single adults, who aren't married and you're sleeping with someone that you're not married with and you excuse it by saying, well I love them, I'm planning on marrying them and the Bible calls it fornication, sin and yet you somehow compartmentalized it and justified it and said it was okay there are some of you who someone has done you wrong they hurt you either through deeds or through words, and you've crossed your arms and you've said, I don't care, I am not forgiving them. You're sinning against God. 90% obedience is 100% disobedience. So what do we need to do? I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to humble ourselves before Almighty God. We need to fall on our face before God and beg Him to forgive us. We need to humbly submit our lives, surrender our lives entirely, completely to him and that's not saying we'll never blow it that's not saying we'll never mess up that's not saying we'll never falter we probably will but it's saying that the desire of our heart is to give him our all and we're going to trust him and we're going to live every day trying to live that way we need to obey completely fourth Impulsive decisions can lead to devastating consequences. Now, an impulsive means we're swayed or led by our emotions, our impulses, when we're making decisions. And Saul's life was a life of impulsive decisions. Now, what I've discovered is most of us fall into one or two categories when it comes to decision-making. Either we tend to be impulsive, we make decisions on our own, we take matters in our own hands, we we make decisions based on our emotions, based upon just some thought that comes into our mind, or we have a tough time making decisions, period. I mean, we, we always say, I gotta have I gotta have some more facts, I've gotta have some more things before I make this decision, and we never have enough facts. And and The truth is, God doesn't want us to be here, and God doesn't want us to be here. God wants us to live our life under His control, making decisions as He directs. Sometimes we make those decisions quickly because the will of God and the Word of God is clear. Sometimes we sit and wait because the will of God and the Word of God is not clear. But we never act impulsively. That's what Saul did, and it led to his downfall. Very early on, we see this when he went to war against the Philistines. Samuel had told Saul to to wait until he got there to go to war. And in 1 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 7, it says this, Some of them crossed the Jordan River, escaped into the land of Gilgal, or Gad and Gilead. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel still didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself, just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet him and welcomed him, but Saul said, what is this you have done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me and you didn't arrive when you said you would and the Philistines were at Micmash, ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines were ready to march against us at Gilgal and I haven't even asked the Lord's help. So, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. And that decision caused Saul to lose his kingdom. Do you hear me? Instead of waiting on God, because he acted impulsively and disobeyed God, he lost everything. A little later on, he made another impulsive decision that almost led to him having to take his own son's life. He made an oath that that no one could eat until they had completely destroyed their enemies. Well, they were fighting and fighting and fighting, and the men were hungry, and they were about famished, and they couldn't even fight any longer because they were so tired, and they were so weak from not having food. It was just a foolish decision made in a moment. Jonathan comes along, and and he eats some honey because he hadn't heard this crazy oath. He told everyone else, you need to eat so that you will have strength. When Saul discovers that this had happened, he was ready to kill Jonathan, his only son, until the people rose up against him and said, Jonathan's the hero of the day. How how can you kill him? Impulsive decisions lead to devastating results. Finally, your future is determined by the choices you make. I want you to look on in chapter 13, verse 13 and following. Notice what Samuel said after Saul did this. He said, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Now listen to what it says. This is important. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. Listen to me. Look at me. Your future is not predetermined. You write your own story. Just because God knows your story, just because God has made provisions based on the choices you make, doesn't mean God has predetermined what you're going to do the Bible makes very clear here that Saul had the freedom to make the right choice and if he had made the right choice his family would have ruled over Israel forever but because he didn't God raised up another leader David a man after God's own heart Who would become the king your future is not predetermined not here on earth not for all eternity some of you sit back and you look at your life here on this earth and and you you think that you were stuck in a certain place and I'm here to tell you you're not and I'm not saying you can be anything you want to be that's foolish I'm never gonna play in the NBA At my very best, if I had LeBron as a coach, I wouldn't make it. I'm not saying you can be anything you want to be. Parents, quit telling your kids that. They can't be anything they want to be, but they can be anything God has created them to be. And what we need to do is help our children discover what God's path is for their life. You determine your future. Embrace the gifts that God has given you. Embrace the calling that God has on your life. And I'm here to tell you, you will be great here on this earth. But your eternity isn't predetermined either. The Bible says God isn't willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. The Bible says that God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Just because God knows what you're going to do in regard to His grace doesn't mean that God has determined that. God wants you to be a part of His family. And listen to me. If you go into eternity And you miss heaven. You miss God's kingdom. It's not because God created you for destruction. It's because you chose to reject God. Oh, please don't do that. God loves you. God has a plan for you. A plan here on this earth. And a plan for all eternity. And I'm here to tell you, it's good. It's good. So embrace it. Accomplish it. Fulfill it. I want you to close your eyes. Bow your head. If your head bowed, your eyes closed. I want to talk to you for just a minute about, about eternity. Because in the end, that's the most important thing. And it will be tragic if anybody in here today misses eternal life with God. God doesn't want that. You're here today because God wants to save you. And if you're here and you don't have a personal relationship with Him, if you're here today and He's never changed your life, then I want to beg you this morning to humble yourself before God. Acknowledge your need accept his grace and surrender your life to him so with your head bowed with your eyes closed if you're here you know you need to do that then i want to encourage you to pray this prayer right now dear god i come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me forgive me for my pride forgive me for my rebellion Forgive me for living life my way. I'm so sorry. I don't want to live this way anymore. God, I know you love me. You sent your son Jesus to die for me. To die for my sins. He was, he defeated sin and death by being resurrected from the grave. And today, Father, I'm trusting. Jesus to save me. I'm giving you my life. Come into my heart. Take control. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me. Thank you for answering my prayer.